truck and your road to success in the trucking industry. This is Trucking Business and Beyond, the show that puts the money where it belongs, back in your pocket. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is Let'sTruck.com. Today is the Power Hour. The show is all about the business of trucking. Today I'll be joined by the team from Pittsburgh Power. We've got Bruce and Ethan and John. We'll take your calls and answer your questions about everything maintenance. Engines, performance, fuel mileage, upgrades, modifications, troubleshooting, electrical emissions, you name it. We'll talk about it. All you have to do is pick up the phone. I'm going to bring the guys from Pittsburgh Power in. Bruce, John, Ethan, welcome, guys. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for having us. It's always our pleasure. Great to have you here. I know we uh, we want to do some wrap-up of the Great American Truck Show. Bruce, I want to hear what, uh, what kind of things you saw. Before we do that, um, I want to jump back into a topic we've covered before, and there's some new news. And this topic just fascinates me. John, you and I have talked about this a lot. Um, We've talked many times about the Nikola truck. The electric truck got all the press coverage. I went through their numbers and basically called BS on many, many things. Um, You referred to it as vaporware. I said their numbers are ridiculous. They don't understand trucking to begin with. But even what they claim they're going to achieve, I'm very skeptical of. And... Now, the reason I'm bringing it up again is um, Tesla is going to announce their electric semi next month. Now, this other company, Nikola, I have no idea who they are, what they've done. I, I don't know what their results have been. What they're claiming is outrageously ambitious. But we do know what Tesla has been able to accomplish, and they're a pretty amazing company. They build by far the best electric vehicle on the planet. Nobody even comes close. He's put a rocket into space and delivered things to the the International Space Station. That's pretty impressive. I don't think many companies could pull that off. He has plans to power the world with his technology. So he's pretty ambitious, but he's been able to prove his results over and over and over. Now, with all that experience... In electrical vehicles, rockets, power plants, you name it, solar, their their truck is going to be released as a day cab and will only have a range of about two or 300 miles. Now, that tells me that if they're better at this than anybody currently, and that's what they're shooting for, that's probably what's realistically possible given the cost and technology right now. Um, Toyota is also going to be releasing an electric semi. And Toyota's range is about the same thing, about 200 miles. And Toyota is using the same hydrogen fuel cell technology that Nikola claims to be using. And they only are, are able to get 200 miles. Now, Toyota's a pretty impressive company on its own. If these two giants with all kinds of experience in this area can only get us two or 300 miles range right now, 
how is Nicola supposed to get us 1,200 miles, which is what they're claiming? I'm just fascinated by what they keep claiming they're going to do, and I don't see how they're going to do it. They well, philosophically, the difference between the and I don't want to you know I, I was the one who called them vaporware, but I do have a little more respect for the program now. And I actually, as it turns out, I'm friendly with uh, some of the engineers working on the project at the engineering firm that they've subcontracted to do suspension design and some other stuff. So I, I've learned a bit more from them. And the difference between them and the others are uh, Tesla is full battery. It's going to be. It's going to need to be recharged, or they've got this little infrastructure deal where they want to include batteries on trailers and be able to dump one off, pick another one up that's been loaded. And they're kind of trying to rewrite the rules on on how freights move too. So they've got some ideas there to get more range than the 200 miles. Uh, the Nikola thing, which is really similar to what Rightspeed does, is it uses the hydrogen uh, fuel as a range extender. So they've got one of those. Uh, um, what the, it, it converts the hydrogen, the electrical energy, and the charges of the battery. So it's got batteries, but it also has range extension. So you'll be burning a fuel uh, that will keep the thing going, much like the the right-speed garbage trucks. They do use a lot of regeneration to keep the batteries up, and they're they're mostly used in the cities, but they've also got a a fuel-burning turbine that runs on diesel fuel or whatever you dump in it, I think. It runs on pretty much anything that'll fire up and keep the batteries charged up, too. So... The difference is, uh, you know, they're 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 relying heavily on their range extension uh, generators on these things to, to make them go farther than what uh, you see Toyota and Tesla and, and Mercedes has got one running now too. Mercedes has got an electric semi already running in uh, Europe. So that's uh, and again, they're straight battery though. So that's you know not to play devil's advocate slightly, but they do have a a different philosophy there by using the range extension. Well, here's the thing: if they're able to pull this off. I would be amazed because what they're claiming is revolutionary stuff. I mean, they they would clearly change the transportation market around the world. If they can pull this off, it, it will change the way freight is moved. It, it's it's very ambitious. Um, I'm just I, I just I, I just don't see the path going forward. I mean, honestly, I, I'm not even understanding how you have a company that builds gliders that's going to put out the first vehicle i'm not even understanding how that really works but they must have plans um so i'm just anxious i'd i'd love to see their my biggest problem with them is the numbers they used from the beginning and still use today i mean they're still claiming you can put a thousand dollars more payload on their truck because it's so light well first of all it's not light right it's heavier than the average truck and they had to use carbon fiber to get there so their whole, you know, you're going to make $1,000 more per load is just a ridiculous statement. And they continue to push that. It's still on their website today. So that's one of the problems I have is that they, they lost a lot of credibility with me on their numbers. But if they could pull off the technology, it will be absolutely amazing. Well, I don't think they could do it for what they're claiming to do it for price-wise. I, I, you know, I know what some of those technologies cost. Uh, you know, the composites in, in particular, they're not getting cheaper. They're, they're becoming more expensive, if anything. So, you know, that's already bottomed, you know, production-wise. I mean, you're not going to make carbon fiber any cheaper than it is right now. Uh, I don't know how they they could afford to, you know, sell it for what they're going to sell it for. 
and yeah. it doesn't make sense. Look, or lease it for what they're going to lease it for. Yeah, look at what the upcharge is on a carbon fiber bicycle. Right. The, the, oh, I know. The, the price goes through the roof yeah. immediately you because of that one. Into a bicycle. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yep. So I, I'm, I, I love the ambition. I love the ideas. I just don't see how they bring it to the real world and actually produce this truck. But, um, you know, when I saw what Tesla was doing, what Toyota was doing, you talked about Mercedes, what they're doing. Um, that's obviously practical. They'll put that to work on the road, whether or not it's going to work or not. And, and right now, those trucks have no hope of being over the road. I mean, nobody wants a truck that we have to stop and recharge every five hours, and that's what we'd be looking at here. So clearly, these are going to be short-haul trucks in the beginning. Absolutely. Yep. So we'll see. So, well, Interesting you, uh, stuff. What did you think of the show? I, I wasn't there. Let's move back on to, uh, to your take on the, uh, on the you, truck show. So here's my and take. all those meetings that you were talking about on social media go. Yeah, here, here's my take. This was the most unusual truck show I've been to in 25 years for me. I don't know if anybody else noticed it, but for me, I'm typically flooded with requests from product or service manufacturers that are trucking. You know, they build a product for truck. They want me to look at it. That, that's what I've been doing year after year after year. Every meeting I had at the, the ones that I, I wish I would have had more time to squeeze more in. But the meetings that I did have were from people that knew almost nothing about trucking. These were all tech companies. They were all 20-something, you know, I want to call them kids. Um, they're not, clearly. They're, they're, you know, very accomplished in what they do, but they don't understand trucking. The other thing I noticed talking to all these companies, they are all flush with cash. Um, you know, I don't want to say they're spending like drunken sailors, but, you know, when you get uh, when you're a fairly small startup company and you get sixty two million dollars in cash and some of it comes from Bill Gates, that's a pretty big thing. Um, so these were all tech yeah. companies. They're, they're basically all building some sort of new technology apps, services, and the money is just flooding into that sector. Convoy since 2015 has raised $80 million. Trucker Path just raised $30 million. Transfix, I think, has raised $52 million. That's a lot of money. That's more money than I've seen in trucking in a long time. We'll, uh, we'll come right back and talk about that right after this. Stick around. We'll be right back. This is the Power Hour. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Don't go away.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. The number to join us, 8888 Road Dog. We're going to get back to the calls. This is the Power Hour. I've got Bruce and John and Ethan with me. We're doing a recap of Gats. So it was one of the busiest truck shows I've ever had because I had eight hours of seminars in three days, and I tried to squeeze in meetings, morning, lunch, and dinner. So I didn't really get to walk the show at all because I really did want to see so much of this technology and talk to these companies, not at their booth. You know, I I was able to get, you know, some meetings away from the show with the decision makers in these companies, not, you know, not necessarily the people standing around the booth handing out literature. So it's fascinating to see what they're doing. It's hard to predict what it's going to do, whether it's going to be a... What they're doing will be a positive for the industry, they're making things more efficient. And that's why the money's flooding in. You know, the technology has taken over almost every industry we have. And they're looking for where are they going to grow next? Where, where is technology going to grow that it already isn't? And somebody figured out trucking is a really, really inefficient industry. We have trucks running around empty while loads sit on the dock not with no truck to move them. We have a horribly inefficient system, and that's why all this money is flooding in. It's a new frontier for them. It's a place to make it more efficient. I believe they'll make it more efficient. My concern is, will it be better for the guys we serve, the owner-operator of the small carrier market? And that's still up in the air. You know, all of these efficiencies could end up only benefiting the shipper in the form of lower rates. That, that these efficiencies might not pass down to the owner-operator as a better revenue stream. So that's what I'm afraid of. It is, it, it's going to solve some problems for them. Some of these apps are a really awesome way to manage your loads and your time, but there's this risk that it could just be a race to the bottom with rates, which technology has done in many industries. Yeah, Absolutely. That's kind of scary. <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, I, I, I want to stay really tight with some of these companies, not that I necessarily want to partner with them going forward. I'm not sure yet, but I want to stay really close so I see what's going on and where they're going and where will there be opportunities for our market to take advantage of this? If so, where is that opportunity? Um, I, I've been on a, a, you know, complete boycott of Uber um, only because I see what they're doing with autonomous technology and I'm certainly not going to be able to stop it, but I'm also not going to support it. I mean, in the short term, I don't think that's good for our market at all and certainly not in the long term. And people say, well, you know, lots of companies are building autonomous technology. Are you boycotting them all? No, I'm not because that's what they do. They build autonomous vehicles. That's going to happen. My problem with Uber is they're using the owner-operator to build their freight base just like they used all these guys with their own personal vehicles to build their rider base. And once they capture the market in riders and freight, then they bring in their own autonomous vehicles and they capture the entire market. It's a brilliant strategy. I, I will clearly say very, very smart move on their part and they're executing it quite well. I just don't want to support it. 
So I, I took the Uber app off my phone and I use Lyft now. That's my little protest. <laughs> I, I would do that, but Lyft is a lot more expensive here. I, I uh, it, it's almost double for some of the rides that I take. I've got a, I, I've got them both. So. I, I've only used it in one place because on the way down to Dallas, I thought you know if I'm really going to say this, I need to stop using Uber completely. So I did, and in in um, oh, I'm glad you brought that up because there was something else I had on my list to talk to you about today. Um, in Dallas, Lyft was pretty reasonable, just pretty close to the same thing I paid with Uber last year. Let's talk about that, though, because that's interesting. Right now, the average cost for a rider on Uber, if we look at everywhere they serve riders, the average cost is about two fifteen a mile. That's what Uber claims is, is what you'll pay on average to use their service, two fifteen a mile. Th- these are their numbers. They say with autonomous technology, and another analyst firm went in and and looked at these numbers, they claim with autonomous technology, they will get that rider cost down from $2.15 a mile to $0.25. Uh, That's impressive. I don't know how they could do that. I couldn't figure it out either, and even the analyst firm... That math math does not work in my head. Well... That that doesn't, doesn't work. I didn't either. Let me give you another number that they put out. They their their point. This analyst actually works in the auto industry, and he claimed by the time they were up in full production and using autonomous cars, the U.S. auto market would suffer a forty percent de- decrease. They claim these cars as a service and these autonomous vehicles could replace one of these would replace nine cars in the U.S. system. Why? I could I could believe that the uh, you know I've got some some young friends uh, you know for with being involved in the racing all these drivers are young and you know so I've got some you know millennials that I'm pretty friendly with and talk to and my son included uh, and this and this kid's a race car driver he hates driving a car on the street right. he lives in Hoboken New Jersey now he takes public transportation where he likes to go he has zero interest you know when he comes home and has to drive places he can't stand it. And I've got a lot of other friends who are moving to the city. We've got all these neatly, uh, newly gentrified neighborhoods and things, and that's where all the young people, they're not, they're not doing the uh, white picket fence house in the suburbs and two cars, you know, and, and financed by General Motors anymore. They want to they live near the, where they work, and, the, you know, most of them are in the tech business or whatever, and they're in a city. And they don't, uh, they don't embrace the vehicle like we used to. So things like ride-hailing, you know, the, the Uber and such really suits them. They don't even want to own a car. So... So that that may be where they're getting it's some really of these. It's really common amongst young people. Yeah, that may be get where they're getting some of these numbers. When when one vehicle can replace nine, costs go way 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 down. But here here's what really grabbed my attention. I've said forever that I think autonomous is going to happen in trucking because there's so much money to be saved, and money drives everything. If they can drive the cost of a car ride down from two fifteen to twenty five cents, what are they going to do to cost in trucking? It's, yeah, well, have you seen any of their predictions there? Or no, have no, you, I looked, uh, studied any of that. This was the first time I found any predictions on their numbers, and it was only on the cars. So I went digging everywhere, and I can't find it on the trucking side at all. But let's just use a. a a ratio, a percentage, they've reduced cost 10 times. 
from two fifteen right. down to twenty five cent, nine times every bit of you know a nine fold reduction in cost. If you do that in trucking, talk about a game changer. That's incredible if they come anywhere near those numbers. I don't see how that could happen. Look, so you just just use the average of one hundred and twenty thousand miles a year. So the guy, if he makes one hundred twenty grand a year, that's a that's a buck a mile. So you eliminate the driver, you eliminate a buck a mile, maybe plus some so, tax burden and health insurance burden and a few other things. But so let's so say, so you say you take a dollar a mile out of out of the out of the equation where that put let, you freight wise. That's going to cut it in half, right? Yeah, let's expand well, on it a little well, wait bit. Wait a second. Wait a second. Go ahead, Bruce. Yeah, company drivers don't make a dollar a mile. They're anywhere from thirty-five to fifty cents. Right. So well, I was right. just going with the, with the best case. But I was, yeah. I was just giving you best case scenario. You know what I mean? That's so, the absolute most I could see them yanking out of it. So let's expand on that a little bit because I agree with you. So I dug into these costs. Okay. So first off, let's forget right. the driver for a second. Let's think about producing, and I'm talking about true level five autonomous because that's the goal you know it's going to take us a long time to get there but that's where we're headed when you can now build a vehicle that does not need a rider think of all the systems and costs that go away we don't even need a cab anymore we don't need seats we don't need glass we don't need ac we don't need heating we don't need controls or dashboards or gears think of all the stuff that goes away and you basically build a frame and a drivetrain well, that's going to drive the cost of the vehicle and maintenance way, way down. So there's a huge savings there that I don't think a lot of people are thinking of. You eliminate the driver, the whole vehicle now changes completely. So right. then, the, then the other thing, look at a trucking company. Their number one cost is labor. The driver is the number one cost. But you also have a huge staff that has to support that driver. You have, you know, a human resource department. You have a settlement department. You have a compliance department. You have a safety department. And you have a recruiting department that has million-dollar budgets for recruiting because it's so hard to keep drivers in a seat. You have workers' comp and benefits and taxes and a payroll department. Without a driver, all that stuff goes away. We'll, uh, we'll come right back. We'll talk about that more right after this. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rutherford.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. I've got Bruce and John and Ethan with me from Pittsburgh Power. We're talking about uh, electric, autonomous technology, where we're going. I I love saving this kind of stuff for this show because you guys have a lot of feedback and input on this. And I'm sure I'll get a bunch of hate mail saying I'm pushing autonomous vehicles again. I'm not. I'm trying to look to see how fast this could come. Um, and it's looking like it could come a lot faster than what we think because if there's this much money to be saved, there will be tons of money invested. Um, John, I think I talked about this last week, but you weren't here. Um, there is a Chinese company called Too Simple, T-U Simple, that is building or has... Oh, yeah, no, I was here. I was oh, that's here okay. That. Got it. So yep. they claim Class 5 automation in five years. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So John, John, you may be right on that dollar amount that they say because of what Kevin just said about everybody that's behind supporting the driver. I, I didn't think about that, Kevin, so that's good. Oh, it's, it's even more than that. I mean, you know, I, I think that, like I said, that was in, in – to me, that was driver's wage, best-case scenario. Um, you know, everything Kevin added to that is going to make it even more. You know, you're right. They could see reductions like they're, like they're claiming with the cars. The, just the the cost yeah. of the vehicle itself it changes dramatically if we don't right. have to have a driver in there. I mean, really, we think about the vehicles built for the driver. Think of all those systems. Yep. I mean, something as simple as windshield wipers. That all goes away. It, <laughs> we don't need any of that stuff. It's kind of crazy yep. when you think about if you could build a true level five autonomous vehicle right now, I bet it, we'd be shocked at how cheap it would be. But, you know, Kevin, let's look at something else. When I was 19 years old, I was midnight dock foreman for Motor Freight Express. And we had three city, maybe four city drivers for every over-the-road driver. You still have to get the freight picked up. You still have to get it loaded. You still have to tie it down on a flatbed or drop deck. So you still need those type of people. Autonomous can't load and unload a trailer. Well, you're right, and, and, and that's going to be the progression, but let's think about this. And people said, well, they can't fuel themselves either, and, and uh, all those things are absolutely true, and they're issues, but they're not that hard to solve. I mean, let's think about the fueling. Driver said, oh, what's this autonomous vehicle going to do? It can't fuel itself. Okay, but instead of having 100 trucks running around with a driver in it just so he can stand there and stick the pump in and pull the lever... Why not just have full-service truck stops? It's a whole lot cheaper. You have one guy that stands there, and he can fuel 100 trucks a day. And from the shipper's point of view, maybe the driver, we, why do we need drivers to load anyway? That's what drivers always complain about, that it's not their job to load. It's their job to drive. So now shippers will just say, look, if the autonomous vehicle pulls up, we've saved so much on our shipping rate, we'll just have a crew here that loads all day, which is the way it should be anyway. Um, why are we taking driver's time when their time is so limited? Why are we taking their time to load? That's always been a complaint in the industry. So we'll fix that. Drivers won't load anymore. Autonomous trucks won't need to be able to load themselves. We'll just have a crew there that does it. That's still way cheaper than every single truck having a driver in the seat 
all of the costs associated with that. So that's why this is such a revolution, because we only think of, okay, the driver's not going to be in the truck, but what does that change? That changes everything. It changes manufacturing. It changes shipping. It changes fueling. It, I mean, this is really... I am, you know, scared and excited all at the same time. Scared because an industry I've been in my entire life is going to be changing so dramatically. We don't know what it's going to look like. But excited at some of this technology. It's just a shame that it looks like the driver is going to be the loser in all this. Well, they, they're, you know, they have to look at, you know, What's it going to take to be on the other end of it? How uh, there there are going to be other jobs created by this technology. You know, we have to figure out how to fix them. I yes. mean, we we should you know ignoring yeah. it's not going to make it go away. So if you get grief about talking about it, that's that's ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> people need to be thinking and raising their children to you know get the education to be able to work on these complicated systems. And we as a shop, I mean, these things still going to have rear ends and they're still going to have transmissions and they're still going to have an engine of some sort and they're still going to yeah. have things that are going to require maintenance. So, you know, for us, we need to remain open-minded and educate ourselves and stay, you know, watch trends and watch what's going to happen. And, you know, when you see somebody like Tesla enter into it, you you know what's going to happen. You just you just know it is. And, you know, I love Tesla to death. Elon Musk is one of my heroes. And, you know, they, they didn't just put a, you know, send a rocket to space. They landed it on a barge. You <laughs> that's know? that's right. It's amazing. Yeah. And again, I've got I've got friends of friends who work at SpaceX and it's just, you know, you look at the pictures of those young engineers and, you know, they're every color and every shape and every size. And, you know, they 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 you know, it's a, it's a campus where they have flex time and where they have gourmet food prepared for them. It's really cool. I mean, it's a really, really neat place to work. And so it's 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 interesting to see what they're able to accomplish and how they capture the energy of those young young engineers. And they've created the enthusiasm to do that. But my worry about Tesla is, even in the automotive world, I really believe they're the canary in the coal mine. They're letting his innovation, his, you know, he's building infrastructure and doing things. I'm sure he'll be taken care of financially just fine. But, you know, whenever the big ones get in, when Mercedes and when, you know, people with way more budget and way more, more you know, resources than Elon Musk has got jump in on some of these things, it's, you know, he may be squeezed out. But, but he's out there proving concept, doing proof of concept for all of them. And so, and like you said, he makes and almost yeah, and he makes almost all of his technology open source. He shares it with almost everybody, right? Yeah, it's well, people are going to find it anyway. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're true. foolish to think it can't be hacked or whatever. So it, it's just it's just you know to, to waste energy and aggravation and and your thought process on protecting that stuff is just a waste of time. You're yeah, better off thinking of other things. Yeah. So. Well. Um, yeah. Anything else we want to talk about? Uh, a Gats wrap-up, Bruce? Anything? Uh... <laughs> well, I met a tremendous amount of Texans that still believe, like me, they love the old-school trucking way. They still do a lot of their own work, and they build their trucks, and they love the 95 through 2002 truck, and that was a very refreshing to speak to those fellas. And I met some of their sons that are coming up and going to be in the industry. So it was a good show. We enjoyed it. And, you know, there, there's, the a good, thing- there's a good point there. I, I've been saying the reason I'm staying on top of all this disruption and change is because disruption and change always creates opportunity. So, you know, we could sit back and either try to bury our head in the sand and say it's not going to happen, or we could sit back and say, oh, it's all doom and gloom for us. It's really not. 
this is going to be a long transition. It's going to happen over decades. Even if it starts in five years, it's already started, actually. Um, We're well into it. But it'll be decades that we'll be transitioning. So there's still going to be plenty of opportunity for guys like that and for us. And, and, you know, let's take advantage of the opportunities it presents now and let's be looking at what we could do in the future. That's my whole point about talking about all this. And the other thing about the show, uh, we had two little bottles of soot that were taken out of Dorothy and people were shocked to see how many ounces of soot an engine eats in 10,000 miles. So that was a, and you saw that, that was a, oh. an interesting thing there. John, you know, you've sent me pictures, but to see it in person, first off, that's the first time I've seen the Dorothy itself in person. It's an amazing piece of engineering. I love it. But to see the soot and to smell it, you know exactly, you know, it, it that made it very real, and I am shocked at how much soot comes out of that. Uh, that I know it didn't look, you know, at first it might not look like much, but that bit I had from the new X-15, now that's a brand new engine, so it's running pretty clean right now. You know, it's not burning any oil, it should be, everything should be nice and, and good on it. And that was just 4,000 miles. I mean, that was at least an ounce, you know, of dirt. Yeah. This thing, you, you take your air filter out of your truck and shake it out, and you put all that stuff together, right? Say so you take, you know, 10,000 miles and shake your air filter out, and it would probably be about the same as that. So we're generating it and putting it into the engine. It makes you wonder why you have an air filter on it. So it's as <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's dirt as you'd find in your, in your air cleaner, right? Yeah. So think about that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased with it. It's, uh, you know, some have been uh, – the, the DD-15s are proven to be pretty clean. They don't, they don't produce as much as the, uh, as, the, as the Cummins right now. And again, I don't know. Maybe it's how we. It might be on our end. It might be the temperature of the exhaust when we catch it, or or what's going. You know, a number of things going on there. I know Tad's got like moisture out of his before. He's gotten. If you check it right after you warm it up on a cold, humid morning, it'll or cool, humid morning, it'll uh, it'll have a bunch of water in it. You know, interesting. Make it into the engine. So it's yeah. interesting to see what it does. That is. Uh, so yeah, he he freaked out one day. He uh, you know I, I guess he warmed his truck up and then he went and dumped it out and went to dump it out and it was full of water. Wow, it was full of condensation from the exhaust. Cool. When the atmospheric right. correction you know conditions are correct, it does that. Yeah. So well, there's a, there's a lot to it there, and I, we're still learning. Uh, like I said, some are catching more than others. Uh, I'm probably gonna you know we're, we're in the mass production stage, but there may be some different variations and baffles inside and so forth to get them even more efficient. But it does something. You know, it catches no matter what. It's absolutely hey got to get to a break we're going to come right back and get to your calls and questions right after this stick around i'm kevin rothford Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. 
I've got Bruce and John and Ethan from Pittsburgh Power with me. We're going to get right to it. There's so much to talk about. The truck show just happened. There's all kinds of technology. But, of course, we want to get to your calls and questions, too. So we're going to head off to Oklahoma. Stuart, welcome to the program. Better tax yesterday there, Kevin. Absolutely. Uh, I know that John and Bruce. All right, John and Bruce are big, big into racing technology. Uh, uh, Mazda, with its Sky Active uh, 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 brand, uh, there has has released a uh, an engine plan called HCCI. Kind of wondered if y'all have uh, heard a little bit about that. It's supposed to be a perfect mix between diesel and gasoline. As far as maintenance goes, it's supposed to be more like a gasoline and. And they're they're touting a forty seven percent markup in uh, uh, fuel economy. It, that's for real. I actually just read a whole article on that, and I've been following it for a while. Um, the the engines that we work with, that I work with on the weekend, are Mazda Sky Active engines. So I'm, I'm very familiar with it. The, with the earlier Sky Active, which is basically their their uh, direct injected gasoline engine with a spark plug. That new HCCI is going to be a compression ignition gasoline engine, which is really clever. So they've uh, they've managed to uh, create enough uh, heat of compression to to light gasoline, which is you know more stable than diesel fuel. So they are going to see um, it's it's interesting. It's really the the injection uh, uh, schemes and so forth have it nice and quiet. They've got uh, some really really interesting stuff going on with that. It's uh, you know, I don't know. I've read everything I could read on it. That doesn't it doesn't really get into all the detail. I believe it does still have a spark plug, but it doesn't uh, doesn't always use it. So it's an interesting interesting piece. Yeah, what, what I was reading was that it. it Oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say I've been reading up on this too, and this is something a lot of auto manufacturers have been working on, and they haven't been able to solve. And it seemed like. The, the way that Mazda solved the problem, John, was keeping the spark plug there, but only using it when it was absolutely necessary. It seems like that was kind of the big breakthrough. Right. Yes, it was. Well, and, and the brilliance of it that a lot of people don't realize is it gives you the ability to run multiple air-fuel ratios. A gasoline engine is no longer stoichiometric. It's able to run on, you know, because a, a diesel engine in some instances will run as high as 200 to 1 air-fuel. Uh, but, you know, it'll just burn whatever it needs to push the piston down, you know, dependent on load, rather than, uh, you know, having to be a specific air-fuel ratio to burn. So it's really, really interesting. So they're going to get that ability out of gasoline from what it looks like. Well, does that, does this, does this, is this in place with the diesel engine, or is this, uh, is this just a, a, a concept right now that they're looking at for improved fuel economy is what I'm, what I'm not well, I believe both. They're going to see diesel-like uh, torque numbers and power numbers uh, without the diesel emissions. So it could be, you know, something that saves the internal combustion engine, which, you know, a lot of people are predicting that the end of someday, too. But uh, with the abilities they've got and the, the, the ability for it to be as clean as it's going to be, uh, it definitely can, uh, you know, the emissions are going to be super, super low on it. So it's it's interesting. So I believe it's just it's a path forward. I don't know that we'll ever see big heavy-duty versions of this, but, but you never know. Well, Mazda Mazda's supposedly one of the bigger truck manufacturers uh, in the Japanese market. Um, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but I know they're in partnership with Ford on a lot of things, too. You know, Ford's 
uh, Ford has got a huge stronghold on the, the heavy-duty truck market. So I just didn't know if this was leading to a new diesel engine or not. You, know, uh, you never know. It may. I, I was just going to say, anything's possible. It's certainly, I mean, you could almost call it a hybrid, a, almost a cross between gas and diesel. So um, it, that, that's what I mean. We, we are in such a major technology revolution, it'll almost make your head spin right now. Um, so we'll keep an eye on it. I love talking about and researching it. So we'll, uh, let's get to some calls right now. Let's go to South Carolina. Tim, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. How you doing today? Good. What can we help you with? I've got a 2000 Freightliner Classic XL with an N14 in it. I had a complete in-frame overhaul done about 18 months ago, and then I had cam bearings and stuff put in about four months ago. Last Thursday, I was going up Jellicoe Mountain, and my engine started making a really funny sound. I couldn't put my finger on it, so I got to the top of the mountain. I, well, I backed way off, and all the gauges were reading normal. Got to the top of the mountain, pulled over, and started checking everything. And water was fine, oil was fine. There was no, you know, mix of anything going on. And and the engine sounded fine at idle, but when you revved it up a little bit, it made a really funny sound. Well, because of all the money I got in it, I didn't want to try to drive it anywhere to get it fixed. So I got a tow truck. And I got it towed to a local shop there that was recommended to me by a couple of people. And they finally got the motor tore down today, and the number six cylinder is really chewed up. And there's no broken rings, no injector tip blowing off, no valve problem. And I'm just racking my brains. I was a mechanic for a long time. I'm trying to rack my brain trying to figure out what would cause that thing to suddenly chew up a cylinder like that. Well, and that's been the mystery for the last 40 years that I've been doing this. Whenever there's a piston liner failure... You have to look, is it failing on one side, or is it the whole 360 degrees? And then you have to go in and measure your upper and lower counterbores. You have to check the concentricity of the upper with the lower. And then you have to come down, could there have been a problem with that piston? Could there have been a problem with that liner? So it's, it's hard to say exactly what it is. When we just had yeah. one do it on a six NZ cat- caterpillar, and uh, there was really no explanation of why that happened. At forty thousand miles, it lost the piston. Yeah, well, so it happens on all engines. Okay, so it's not. I mean, like I said, I my mind in my mind, I would think there's something had to cause for it to just happen all of a sudden like that. You know, like a broken ring or. Or injection yep. tip got in there and chewed it all up, but you know, because it, it got—I mean, it had it when I pulled over at the top of the hill and I started it back up, and it was a lot of oil blow-by coming out the blow-by tube and a lot of oil smell coming out of the exhaust. Yeah, that's when I decided to shut it down and not, you know, not even start it back up until I got it into the shop. You know, that's the beauty you know, of the N fourteen. You only have to pull one head, and you're not dealing with an overhead camshaft. It's a whole lot easier to put one cylinder kit in an N14 than it is in all the other engines with a, a one-head and overhead cam. So you're fortunate yeah. that way. Yeah, they, uh, you know, they said their uh, number five, where well, they had the head off, they said number five had a little bit of 
marring in it too. So I told him go ahead and do both cylinders since I got that head off anyway. Go ahead and put a piston liner in both those cylinders and replace those two rod bearings. Um, do you think I should go any time, further than that? No, no. A lot of times those little lines that you see are just the uh, ring gap, leaving a little line as it travels up and down the liner. Sometimes a little bit right. of dust or dirt that got in. But you, know, you probably didn't need to do number five, but cylinder kit's not that expensive. And when one head's off, you did the right thing. Yeah. But but to be able to say exactly what caused it, that's a, that's a mystery. You got it. Yeah, well, I my race car back in the early 70s. The saying was, metal fatigue is a racer's biggest enemy. So think of a semi-truck pulling a mountain. I mean, it's working yeah. harder than a race car. And Jellico yeah. Mountain, that's quite a mountain you were on right there. So to say exactly yeah, but what I sure it was. That... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Does this engine make 32 pounds of turbo boost on a pull? Uh, yes, it does. Okay. Well, that's, that's a five and a quarter then. That's what it's supposed to make. And my old samples, when I... Normally, I change my own oil, and I pull a sample like every other time, and everything's been good ever since. Kevin's reviewed a couple of my old samples over the last year and a half. Everything's, you know, been real good. Unfortunately, the last time I had an oil change done, I was out on the road, and I was past due, and I had a whole weekend, so I had it done at a truck stop, but I did not get an oil sample. 2020, I wish I would have got an oil sample there. You do your own oil changes? Good for you. I, that, that makes me happy. I like hearing that. I like people that work on their own trucks. Bruce, you know, a couple couple things came out of that. We're just about done today, so I'll, I'll wrap up with this. Um, you know, we love oil analysis because we can catch so many things early that are going wrong. I, I highly recommend it for everybody. But you mentioned metal fatigue, and we never see that coming. In any sample, it, it just it's one of those things we have to deal with, and there is no indication when it's going to happen. So as much as we love oil analysis, there are still some things that can happen that we won't see coming, and this is one of them. We'll, uh, there's the music. I've got to wrap this up. We'll do it again next time. Thanks for joining us. Be safe. Be profitable. Be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. I'm Kevin Rutherford. All right, here we go at the second hour. I will let you know we have a lot of callers on the line, but uh, we have lots of room for questions. So if you want to jump in right now with a question, a comment, a topic, press 1 on your phone, and we will get to you. If uh, we have enough questions, we'll keep going. If we run out, we'll stop for the day. So right now is your opportunity. If you've got questions, jump in and press 1. Here we go. Your money, your taxes.
is your truck and your road to success in the trucking industry. This is Trucking Business and Beyond, the show that puts the money where it belongs, back in your pocket. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is Let'sTruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking, and today is the Power Hour. I've got Bruce and Ethan and John with me from Pittsburgh Power. We'll take your calls and answer your questions about everything maintenance. Engines, performance, fuel mileage, upgrades, modifications, troubleshooting, electrical emissions, new technology, you name it, we'll talk about it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and join us. John, Ethan, Bruce, welcome back. Well, thank you. And uh, we have something Ethan wants to start the show and talk about a new T700 Kenworth. I think it's a T700 and some coolant issues. So, so whenever you're ready, let's let Ethan talk about this. All right. Go ahead, Ethan. Yeah, what the, it, one of our, our customers there dropped the truck off well, sometime last night, found it this morning in the, the back there. And it, it's interesting because he did as much as he can do. They replaced the coolant level sensor. They, they looked at the wire and couldn't see anything. Um, then they decided they had a few other little electrical issues that they didn't want to get into, so they dropped it off. And the big one is the coolant level one, which is interesting because I couldn't find anything initially wrong with it either. And until I inspected in the tank, and we haven't torn it off yet to see what, what's quite in there, but something is causing in the tank it to act like it has low coolant when it doesn't. Um, it's either dirt, oil, or, or something got into there. Because what I did is I took a, a coolant level sensor. They, they swap right out from truck to truck from another truck that I knew was working just fine and stuck it in, you know, in the tank and got the exact same result. Uh, which led to the conclusion that there's something in the tank causing the problem. And what were the uh, readings that you had received? What was that, Bruce? What were the readings on your ohms and amps, the differences that Uh, you were seeing? Yeah, what... What I did is I also went to the truck where it was, you know, one that you knew was working, and I used my, my multimeter, and the one that was working fine was putting out 120 ohms, you know, and the truck was sitting there, no coolant light level on, and I went to the, the truck with the issue here, the, the Kenworth, and took another reading, and it was reading 1.5 kilo ohms, which is 1,500 ohms, and it... Uh, that's when I got the idea to switch the sensors, and when I did that, they got the identical readings back-to-back in both trucks. So, you know, the, the sensor that was questionably bad read just fine in the, the uh, truck with a good tank with nothing in it, and the sensor I knew was good read the 1,500 uh, ohms, and that led to the conclusion that there's something in the tank, not the sensors, not the wiring, because when you try to, you know, vice versa, they work just fine. All right. That's our electrical problem of the week. That's a very strange one, Kevin. <laughs> Got it. Got that, it. That's kind of uh, that's kind of a follow up on uh, what we talked about last week. Remember our thermistor uh, thermocouple discussion? Oh, that's so, right. Similarly, yeah. with a with a level indicator like he's talking about there, that gets dirtied up by years of uh, not so clean uh, coolant. 
you know, it's uh, the same thing happens. So, again, things, things that happen over age or maybe lack of maintenance or maybe that uh, cooling system should have been cleaned and flushed a couple of times in the truck's life. Again, it's uh, it's garbage in, garbage out. We're going to get going to get lousy info for the computer, and you end up with a derate or a problem that you uh, you know simply related to that low level coolant on the on the dash stuck on all the time. Got it. Got it. All so right. We'll let, next week we'll let you. Next week we'll let you know after we clean out this tank if that cures the sol- or solves the problem. Perfect. All right. Good stuff. Let's get to some calls. We're going to head off to Texas. Jason, welcome to the program. Hello, gentlemen. How are you guys doing this afternoon? Good. What's on your mind? Good. Hey, I had a question that's trying to wrap my head around gearing. I know we've been talking about direct drive, running in direct drive, and putting different uh, axle ratios in the rear end. I was looking for an explanation on what's the difference if we're running the same final drive ratio in the end, whether, you know, we're running 65 with an overdrive trans and the RPMs are the same versus direct drive and the RPMs are the same and we changed the rear end gearing. So I'm just trying to figure out what the difference is and why they're more efficient when we change the axle ratios versus doing it, you know, the overdrives and the trans. Bruce, I'll let – right. I'll tell you. I was going to say, Bruce, I'll, I'll let you exactly explain this because you do a really good job of explaining this so people can understand it. At Western Truck Parts in Henderson, Colorado, we had a 18-speed on a dyno, on a transmission dyno, and we had the top cover off, and we were looking inside to see what happens. And when you're in overdrive... The input shaft comes in, and it's turning two gears on the outside. When I see the outside of the transmission, it's still inside the case, but it's against the outer shell. And then it travels down, bypassing most all the gears in the transmission, and then it hits two gears at the back end, and those turn the tail shaft, which turns the overdrive, which turns your drive shaft. So you're, you're changing the direction of your power three times or more. But when you're in direct, you're coming straight through the input shaft, straight down the middle of the transmission, straight out the tail shaft. So there's no change of power. Did, did you ever, were you ever into boating by any chance? No, I have not. But I mean, I have an understanding okay. of how they work. I will, a boat that has an inboard-outboard, the engine sits on the rear, the power comes out, goes into a gearbox, turns 90 degrees and goes down, turns 90 degrees, goes out, turns the propeller. It runs okay on top end, but it takes a very long time for that boat to accelerate. The, the driver is actually looking up into the sky. He can't see the water in front of him. A lot of people stand up at the steering wheel and it makes a very lousy ski boat because it doesn't generate enough power to pull the skier out of the water. Where a competition ski boat still ends the, the Ford or the Chevy V8, the engine's on a slant, and it goes right straight through the transmission on the uh, shaft, right back to the propeller. It will yank you right out of the water. Now, top end speeds, they're the same, but it's 
how much easier the ski boat gets there with a direct drive. And the same thing happens on your semi truck. And and I'm I'm gonna go back at how I first time I really realized this. We had a Chevy Love with an Isuzu four cylinder, normally aspirated pickup truck. And we were using it to run parts back in the around eighty two, eighty three. And just for the heck of it, we put a pyrometer on it, and no turbocharger. We just wanted to see how hot it would run. Well, normally aspirated diesel engine runs very hot. They'll go right to 1,400, 1,500 degrees. But in the hills in western Pennsylvania, when we had enough power to pull the hill in fifth gear, which is a five, it was a five-speed, fifth gear being overdrive, we would downshift at one gear, the fourth gear direct, and we would drop 250 degrees exhaust temp. And yet the truck pulled the grade or the hill much easier. And the same thing happens on a Dodge Cummins pickup truck, especially the older 12 valves, because you only have four gears to work with. And the how much easier and freer the truck runs in direct. Well, let's take this over to the semi-truck industry. Years ago, whenever we had 250s and 290s and 270s and 335s, when the overdrive transmission came out, they said that's only for when you're empty or bobtailing. You're not to pull in overdrive because the engines didn't have enough power. So as the engine started to come up in horsepower, they found out, okay, we have enough power to pull in overdrive, but it's not as efficient. And I talked to several people at the Dallas Truck Show that did the 264 gears, and they are thrilled with them. In fact, I have never had an owner-operator that put 264 gears in his truck and did not like it. Same here. Well, that's a good explanation. I, I understand it completely. I, I figured there was some simple explanation to it. I just didn't know what it was. I just I was thinking final drive ratio was what I, I was stuck with in my head. Yeah. Now, every time you change direction of power, you lose power. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and it sounds like too. I mean, you're just you're tur- turning a lot less parts being indirect in the transmissions mm-hmm. you're spinning less material yeah you, you know what would be interesting oh hold that interesting thought bruce because we've got to get to a break we'll talk about that right after this you also have a lot less oil churn the mechanical disadvantage of the gearing alone there are a lot of reasons so uh, bruce that's always a great explanation i love the skibo part by the way we'll uh we'll be right back stick around Kevin Rutherford.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. We're going to get right back to the calls. Bruce and John and Ethan are here doing the heavy lifting. I'm pressing all the buttons, and uh, we are talking to Bruce. Um, go ahead. You had a comment you were going to make when we had to cut to the break there. Let's say we took the diesel engine, and we had it sitting out in a field. And we had the transmission, and behind the transmission, we had a differential. And we brought that horse, that power out, whether it goes left or right, doesn't matter. And then we had another gearbox that turned it on 90 degrees, and another gearbox that turned it 90 degrees, and we made a square. And then we brought it, brought it back towards the engine, and we measured the horsepower. It would be interesting to see how much power was lost by the time you make one, two, three, four, five 90-degree turns. I mean, it's staggering. Yeah. So, and back to that ski boat, Kevin, what a lot of people and a lot of the listeners don't realize is you and I had similar paths to seven years or several years difference. You were into competition water skiing with a master craft. I was into competition skiing with a ski nautique. And you've probably driven some inboard outboards, and you can relate to what I just said there. Bruce, I used to uh, I used to take it as a challenge to see what kind of stupid watercraft I could actually ski behind, like pontoon boats. You know, could I actually get up on a ski? Uh, the early jet skis that didn't have a whole... I've skied behind almost everything. It was almost fun to see if you could get up with, like, no power. And, you know, I, I was able to do that. But I've also been behind the competition size ski boat with a 455 big block and you talk about getting yanked out of the water and that's a direct drive you know right from the engine to the propeller and the acceleration is incredible that's right because you're not changing the position or the direction of the power the uh the barefoot nautique came with a 454 and sometimes we would slow them behind it, but the wake was greater. But for barefooting, it worked great. That that was what I was learning that, that summer you know, was every, was barefooting. And the like, other the other thing you found out about the the, the most of them have the three fifty one Ford in them, which was an awesome engine. Um, the big block they used for their barefoot boats, and boy, did they suck down the gas. You know, whenever you're going 38 mile an hour across the water on your bare feet, didn't really matter. I didn't know you barefooted. I did. I did. One summer, that was the yeah. summer I got, um, I think I got the most frequent flyer points at my chiropractor that year. <laughs> Me too. Every, every face planet, 38 a, mile an hour. That, the, the rule is, in the American Water Ski Magazine, when you feel you're going to fall you close your eyes, you tuck your chin, and you roll onto your side. Well, let me tell you, 38 mile an hour, whenever you lose your footing, you don't get a chance to close your eyes and the, tuck your chin. The whites of your eyes come out red. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I almost don't, looks like you were. I, I don't know why it happened, and you're right. It is, it is a, not even a split second after you do something wrong that your face is going to contact the water extremely hard. You have no time to do anything. And I don't know, for me, it actually would always fold my eyelids backwards. 
I would have have to reach up with yeah. my fingers <laughs> and put my eyelids back in place. It was so violent. <laughs> you know what else it does is your skull is made of five pieces, five sections. And underneath the skull, between the skull and the brain, is a cerebral fluid. Well, it'll open up your skull and it'll let the cerebral fluid force out against the skin. And when you bend over like to tie your shoes, it's horrendous <laughs> yes. headaches. Yeah. And the fellow that was a, a, a Penn State football player, he and I were learning at the same time. And we had the headaches. I went to the chiropractor, and he put my skull back together by holding it with his hands. And that cost me $35. The other guy went to the hospital and it cost him 1200 Yeah, I, I, I would go... Barefoot, or learning how to barefoot every Sunday morning early when the water was nice and calm and there were no boats out there. And I had an mm-hmm. early morning Monday appointment with my chiropractor every week because I knew I was going to need it. <laughs> and the other thing that we had similar backgrounds is we both had body shops. Yeah. Yeah, you that's right. You had an auto body shop. I had an auto body shop. And then we both, you owned a gym and I worked out at a gym. So our, our past, <laughs> we didn't even know each other. We're very, we're, they, they were the same. That's right. That's right. You uh, drove Chevrolets and I drove Chevrolets. Yeah. Lots of similarities. Let's, uh, let's head off to Wyoming. Joy, welcome to the program. Hello, everyone. Hello there. Hello. I have a two questions. I just got in a uh, 2016 Cascadia, only been in it a couple weeks. Right off the bat, uh, it has two different steer tires on it, which I don't like, and I'm going to change as soon as possible. The right side is wearing on the, the out shoulder. I think the toe is out, the alignment. And I'm wondering if that could be causing, I don't know if you can hear it, but the cabinet behind my passenger seat, shakes violently the whole right side of the truck is just one big rattle is do you think that could be uh from the alignment issue outside of the fact that it's a freight shaker (laughs) (laughs) yeah those new ones don't shake that bad no no they're not they're not supposed to if you've got an excessive if you have an excessive amount of toe in, which is what would cause that wear on the outside of the tire, what it'll do it is it'll, it'll wind up the sidewall of the tire, and then it'll release, and it'll wind up, and it'll release, and it'll it'll, it'll you try to pull the tire in, and eventually it's going to give up grip and pop back out, which will cause that uh, that vibration you feel. Okay, that's that's what I thought. So I'm I'm going to uh, get that done as soon as I can get down. I wanna I wanna change the tires at the same time I can see Chad. Uh, he's the one I can get to the most. And then secondly, uh, this, this is the newest truck I've had in a long time. I I know about the Detroit and, and where they have seemed to have been the best uh, motors right now with all the new stuff. Uh, um, what I was wondering, with this newer truck, the upgrades, uh, is it with the way it is, it's a 12-speed automatic, which was I've been trying to get used to. That's kind of weird. But uh, so far, I, I like it. I'm just wondering about upgrades. And with it being new, uh, upgrades, uh, what you would recommend uh, with it being new? Because uh, I'm, I'm not familiar with them yet. Still learning. 
Well, that 2016, we we haven't got uh, tuning for that yet. Uh, we do have the uh, fleet air filter. It would be a, definitely be a plus on that one. And our, our soot separator, the Dorothy, will that keep some of the uh, soot out of the intake and out of your oil. And an OPS system, for sure. Okay. I, I was definitely going to get the... I think the because uh, it's flat, right? The air filter's flat in this engine, yeah. It is flat, yes. Okay, so you have that but one fle- now. Fleet's got a filter for that one. Yes, they do. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, so this one, so the fleet air filter, and I just was hearing about Dorothy, and I was wondering if that would be for for this newer truck too. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Okay. Great. Well, thank you guys. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks You're for welcome. the call. Let's head off Bye-bye. to New Jersey. Daryl, welcome to the program. Well, thanks, Kevin. Hey, uh, I was asking to have you guys just review my first oil sample. I stopped at Bruce's. I had my OPS installed, and I kind of pushed it a few extra hundred miles. I normally change my oil at 15,000-mile intervals. Pushed it about four or five hundred extra miles, so it's just below sixteen thousand. We sampled it, and it was almost a, a gallon low. We sampled it, and then installed the OPS. And Bruce walked in and just informed me that I had the original vibration damper on it. He may remember this, so we quickly put the vibration damper and the balancer on it. And I had Adam run the overhead. And then I left with a new fleet air filter, and I'm very happy. Well, good. This is my old first oil sample. I don't know if do you have that oil sample I, in front of you. I'm looking at it, and uh, congratulations to you for making all these changes. Congratulations to Adam. I love when when the overhead actually gets done properly, and this one is right good. on. This one is right on. There, there. Your soot is less than point one. You're just not ever going to get any better than that. There's no fuel dilution. Viscosity is perfect. Base is holding up. No oxidation, no nitration. Your um, wear metals are all low. This is virtually a perfect sample. Well, that's good because this engine has about 949,000 miles. Well, it just goes to show you when you take care of them, tune them, put the right stuff on. Uh, I'm going to get to a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about this and more right around the corner. Don't go away. This is the Power Hour. I'm Kevin Rutherford. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. Bruce and John and Ethan are helping me out. We were talking with Daryl in New Jersey. Uh, Daryl, these oil samples are just, this one's as good as it's going to get. That's that's about as clean as you can expect an oil sample to be. Okay, I'm very happy. And then I'm going to basically start sampling, I guess, at 30,000 mile intervals. Uh, I usually recommend 25. Um, On an engine this clean, 30 would be fine. No, 25 is good. And but here's something that's strange, Kevin. I've owned this truck for a year. I drove 158,000 miles this last 12 months. And I typically don't let the oil get lower than about a half a gallon. I don't overfill it. And I have been using, I've, I've been using a gallon about every 8,200 to 8,500 miles. And that, that's okay. That's not bad at it, all. Yeah, yeah. something here? No, but it, it got better. Okay, so I religiously, about every 8,000 miles, have put a gallon of oil in this thing. And now since I've been at Bruce's and put this OPS on there, and the vibration dampener had the overhead done and put the fleet air filter on, I got 10,200 miles out of this last gallon of oil. Is, is there a reason? You know, I... I something yeah. there that I would have done that... I, I have no, an... The, the reason is... is Go ahead, Kevin. I, I was going to say I've got an opinion about this, except it doesn't always hold true. But the cleaner we keep oil, the longer it should stay. Um, and, and you're keeping this oil really clean with the filter and the proper tuning and everything being set right. And I think that's why you're getting more life out of the oil. Okay. Back I literally in, had to push it. It was 79 or 80 when I was introduced to bypass oil filtration and i went to several seminars and the rule was as oil gets dirty the dirt gets between the rings and the cylinder wall and that's when you start to use the oil so if you can keep the dirt out then you don't have the dirt building up between the ring and the wall so that's what's happening the lps is actually taking the, the dirt out and keeping the oil cleaner so that's why you're not burning it is the truck smoother with the damper and balancer? <laughs> I was t- in fact I called in and told Kevin this last week, but it, it's amazing. I got used to feeling this thing as I rev and shift and rev and shift. And when I left your shop, it was like a complete different vehicle. And I kept my I kept finding myself over revving, and I I'd find myself going sixty five miles an hour when. I, I typically drive 57 to 60 miles an hour everywhere I go. It is a, it's completely a different engine. Yeah, just think if we were to do the manifold turbo and the ECM program, then it's another huge difference. But when I built, first built the very first balancer, and I put it on my T600, the Big Cam 4 350, fuel to 500, I was over revving by 200 RPM. And I said, gee, I've got to look at this uh, tachometer because I only drove it to haul an RV, so I didn't drive it every day. And then I built one for my brother's 444 in a Marmon, and he came back with a similar result. And the third one went to Calvin Ketch on a 95-379 with a 5EK cat, and he noticed a difference. So after the three of us noticed a difference, that's when we went into production, and that's how well the balancer works. Yeah, and you you can't even explain that until you feel it, and and it was just an amazing difference. 
you've already okay. done the high performance turbo for me, along with the charge okay. air cooler, the special deal, and I'm going to be back probably in about uh, two or three weeks to have that exhaust manifold and the mufflers done. Good, good. All right. So when I sample this oil at twenty five, Devin, when I sample this oil at twenty five thousand, do I change that OPS filter at that time? Yes. Yeah, that's the time to change the filter and take the sample, and then from the sample we decide what to do. If you're honestly any time you're zero, one, or two, you don't need to change the oil. Most of the time with a three, you don't need to change the oil. We just watch it. Four is usually in the indication that something went, you know, wrong enough that we should change the oil. Okay. But you All can right, always you yep. You can always call in here. You know we're on the air 13 hours a week. You can call in and we'll run through the oil samples with you. Let's go to Kentucky. Steve, welcome to the program. Hey, how y'all doing today? Uh, I got a 95 Kenworth uh, 3406E model. Uh, my question to you guys is: uh, Is there anything, Bruce and y'all uh, mechanics said? That- Took my injectors out, which I just bought them. These cat injectors, like five seventy-five a piece, and from bad fuel, they said the pedal valves are stuck under the solenoids. Is there any oil I can soak these things in to, to try to unjam these things? Because, like I said, they ain't even. I don't even have a hundred miles on them. I don't probably don't even have fifty on them. Well, how does he know that's stuck? Well, we pulled them out. And um, he called me on the phone because I was at work or whatever. He pulled him out, and he said he plugged it up and uh, had a dead miss on two or three of them, just dead miss. And he took them out and pulled them apart and said from the bad fuel is what caused them to stick. Gee. I haven't had fuel that bad. I've never had fuel that bad. You said you never even pulled a load with the truck? No, I I mean, it's got a dead miss when you start it. Well, did you you give those injectors back to Caterpillar and get uh, two or three more? Well, this is what I was doing. They pulled them apart, and he said they looked like they had a million miles on them. And... uh, they didn't really want to warranty them, and um, I won't say the name of the place where I ordered them from, but they were cat injectors, and um, they pulled them apart and said it like they had a million miles on them. They ain't even had 50 miles on them, and I was sending them up there to want to get them cleaned, and they didn't really want to clean them because they just felt like I just probably needed to get some more. Well, that, that's crazy with the cost of cat injectors. There, that I... Bruce, I don't know about you, but I find that impossible. It'd have to, like, not have a fuel filter on the truck. I mean, the filtration, even the stock filtration is enough to keep something like that from happening. In 50 miles, anyway, maybe over 50,000 miles or 150,000 miles. But uh, I I can't imagine that uh, being the case. Well, I'm dumbfounded myself about it because, like I said, this this is no joke. It it, it may not even have 50 miles on them. And, like I said, this guy pulled them apart and um, showed them to me, sent pictures to me and everything, and, he said, and he said, like they just had a million miles on it, and like, and then that's what he said. Let's trying to just stuck trying to get the, you know, under the solenoids, and been trying to spray them just because of you know of that situation. How's he going to spray? How's he going to spray it? 
How's he going to spray an electronic injector? That I don't know. Well, if he takes because, like I said, this, he is, takes, this is all new to me. He takes paint with penetrating oil. If he takes the the solenoids off, which you can do on the cat injector, he could get to some of the mechanicals there. That pentel valve is underneath there, uh, or okay. pentel valve, spill valve. That's what controls the the, the timing of the injection. So that that's not out of the realm of possibility. But I just can't imagine in that amount of time how that could have happened. Like I said, what do you have on your truck for fuel filters? You have the two stock ones, I'm sure. Do you have anything I, I, beyond I have to, that? I have to, you know, I have the short one and the tall one on the on the, the big one on the block right. engine, and then the you know the primary and then the secondary. I tell you what, yeah, I would get you one. I would, I'd buy a couple gallon of Lucas fuel conditioner, and I would over treat. One gallon treats 400 gallon. I think I'd cut it back to one gallon treats 200 gallon. And I'd treat that fuel that's in there if this is a fuel-related problem. Yeah, I can't. Well, that's what he said. This is I just me. Yeah, I couldn't either. In 50 miles, if the fuel's that bad, I don't know how the thing would have run. That, that, that's right. Crazy. Right. Yeah. Nothing yeah, makes sense. Get that much particular past those. Now you're, you're being sold a bill of goods there. I'd, you, you, since you bought those injectors and you and you ought to set the uh, box them up and send them to a reputable rebuilder somewhere, let them go over them and get their opinion on it. Well, I am going to send them to a replica because I'm bringing the truck to y'all here in about three months. <laughs> there's not a, okay. there's yeah, not yeah. a lot of people. There's not a lot of people that can rebuild an electronic injector. The equipment's extremely expensive. And well, so, this is uh, yeah. Nothing's yeah. making a whole lot of sense here, so I would get some new eyeballs on that and figure out what's really happening. Let's uh, let's head off to Virginia. Eric, welcome to the program. Eric, are oh. you there? You are. Go ahead. Oh, you know what, Eric? Hold on. Yeah. I uh, got all this help, and I still can't uh, press the buttons at the right time. I should pay attention to the clock, but I get so wrapped up in the call, I don't always watch the clock. That's why I have music to warn me, or I'd never get to a break. But we will get to a break, and we will come back and get to more of your calls and questions right after this. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. Bruce and John and Ethan are with me, and we are going back to Virginia. Eric, go ahead this time. Hey, guys. I just wanted to say it was great to see you at the truck show, and 
make a quick comment on your earlier conversation of autonomous trucks that uh, one thing you failed to mention is that autonomous trucks won't have to take a 10-hour break either. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Good point. No. Yeah. yeah. Those things run 24-7, or they will. Yeah, when you're, when you're looking at the productivity and, and the savings, then those things can run around the clock. So yeah. That's going to be a, a huge for them, too. Yeah, which I'm I'm sure is part of their calculation on on the savings and one car replacing nine. And you brought this up, John, that that the new millennials don't even necessarily want to have a car. And I look at me; I grew up, you know, Bruce. You and I grew up in the car era, um, and I I work at home, so I never need to commute, and I have three vehicles. What is the point in that? I mean, that, that's just how I've always been, though. I've just always <laughs> had vehicles. And I, I said Uber was finally the company that changed my behavior because I'm so vehicle dependent that I would never travel someplace and not get a rental car. I'd run into people and they'd be like, oh, now when I get to the airport, I get a taxi if I need to go. I hated taxis. I hated not having a car. So I always got a rental car. Well, getting a rental car is expensive and it's time consuming. And now, you know, Uber made that whole experience so much better that they finally changed my behavior. The last couple trips that I've traveled, I don't bother with a car at all. I just get it. Now I get a lift when I need one. So there's part of the savings. You know, people aren't going to have three vehicles sitting in their driveway 95% of the time not going anywhere. You're going to take one car that can move a lot of people around in a 24-hour period. That's pretty darn efficient. Yep. Think about but what you know, said there with the trucks not having to take a 10-hour break. What does that do to the truck market? You can move so much more freight per truck now in a given amount of time. Yeah. That there could be a whole lot less trucks on the road once this happens as well, if you think about that. So, yeah, again, another cost savings. So, yeah, those numbers might might not be as far off as I initially thought with the with the cost savings. It's kind of crazy. Um, again, I, I'm certainly not promoting these things. They just are. They're coming, and they are coming because money drives our economy. And when you can create savings like these numbers that they're talking about, there's going to be a lot. There already is a lot of people chasing this. So we're going to stay on top of it. Send me all the death threats you want. I don't care. Um, we're going to keep talking about <laughs> hey, Kevin, it. Yeah. Check. Did you? You have your phone, or you're on a you're on an Apple machine there, so you should be able to get your text messages on your uh, on your computer. Did you see the text I just sent you? I did, and I clicked on that link. I can't wait to go read this. That looks pretty interesting. Well, I'll just scroll down quickly. The uh, uh, Cummins is building an electric motor, so they've got a whole electric truck they're testing. They, they got a picture of it. So when the world's biggest diesel engine manufacturer builds an electric motor, you, you, you got to think about it you, you better know, you, you can't ignore this better pay attention yeah so um they're talking about is this the one they're talking about releasing in 2022 oh no they yep. say also reveal yeah wow yeah i can't wait to read this whole uh this looks like a great website i'm gonna bookmark this one looks like a lot of good information 
Yeah. Seven I great. read in a in a uh, boating magazine by the year 2025, the freighters across the ocean will not have any people on them. They'll all be autonomous. You know that that but, seems to me yeah. almost easy. I'm 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 surprised that it's yeah. going to take that long. Really, that seems like you would think boats and trains could probably get this technology first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, back to the car thing. I still like to drive. I like to have my own performance car. I like to have it my way and run my way and go the way I want to go. So I guess I'm just still very old school. Well, well, well the young people I talk about agree with that, but they just don't want to need it. Right. Is their deal. Right. They, they want a car to play with. You know, they want a cool car. But they just don't want to have to drive as daily transportation. Yeah. You know, but my son's into cars. He just doesn't want to have to, you know, he wants to use it for fun. <laughs> he doesn't want to, <laughs> right. you know, doesn't, doesn't want to have to, you know, to, to, to use it. Yeah, I, I loved, you know, as much, like I said, as dependent I, as I am on cars. I've traveled for decades now. I always get rental cars. But I will tell you, it is so nice to walk out of a place, hit a couple buttons on my phone, a car shows up, I get in the back, I can talk on the phone because I don't talk on the phone when I drive. I just don't do it. Um, I realize I'm a horrible driver if I'm talking on the phone, so I don't do it. Um, (laughs) But now I can get in the back of the car, I can make calls, I can make that productive time. And you know, we're all busy enough that when I'm working, I want to be as productive as I can. And when I take time off, I want to have as much fun as I can. And driving is one of those things. When I did it for a living, I loved driving a truck. Um, and I made it productive by listening to audiobooks and, and that kind of stuff. But, you know, commuting around a city is not good productive time. It's just aggravating. So for me, I never thought I'd be that, you know, dedicated, hit the app and a car shows up. But, boy, I liked it. And here's the other thing. I was shocked at how many places around Dallas, Lyft and Uber have their own lane. Not, not out on the highway, but like oh, yeah. pull it, pulling into a restaurant, there's a lane just for Lyft and Uber. You pull into hotels, there's a lane just for Lyft and Uber. You can't beat it. I was uh, I got stranded. I wouldn't say stranded. I had a rental car arranged at the Milwaukee Airport uh, earlier this summer when I had to go up to, to Elkhart Lake, uh, which is right near Sheboygan. So I get to a number of delays. There were storms somewhere. I didn't land in uh, in Milwaukee till you know I don't know what time I left here. It was late, and then I was delayed twice, and I didn't land there till almost two a.m. And there, all the rental car counters were closed. I had a rental car arranged, and I had to drive to Sheboygan that night to get to the hotel room to be you know at the track the next day and i'm like well i sat outside i got the the uber app out and clicked and i had a ride there in five minutes it cost 60 bucks to get the whole way up to sheboygan from uh from milwaukee and i didn't have to drive i took a nap that's right (laughs) yeah yeah exactly it's um here's another thing these companies really really understand customer service and they are they are working hard to make the experience so good, and that's kind of what won me over. I'll give you an example. I probably had a total of five lift rides while I was in Dallas, and most of them were excellent. Didn't have a single complaint. Um, one guy showed up in the typical old school Lincoln Town Car, blacked out windows, whole thing. I get in the car. The guy drove like an idiot. 
I mean, seriously, he was going way too fast everywhere. You know, around the corners too fast. So at the end, as soon as you get where you're going, the app pops up and says, hey, your ride's over, please rate it. And and you can tip, and I usually give a good tip and a good rating. And I, I didn't give him such a great tip. And in the comments I put, he drove too fast. That was all I put. He drove too fast. I immediately got a response from Lyft. This will be sent to our driver anonymously, so he doesn't know I was the one that said he drives too fast. Our safety team takes this seriously, and we will review this with him, and we will never match you with this driver again. All right. That's awesome. Yeah. Yep. I had a... I had a Russian taxi cab driver taking us from the Boston airport to the truck show, and it was raining and raining hard, and he was flying. And I reached up, and I touched his right shoulder. I said, I'm a day early. I have all the time in the world to get there. Please slow this car down. And I had to do the same one time to get to the Denver airport from one of the ski resorts. It was snowing. A young man was driving one of those shuttle vans, and I had to tell him the same thing. Yep, Bruce, here's, here's, here's the part you're missing. He wasn't driving that way because he thinks you're in a hurry. He could care less about you. He was driving that fast because that's the only way he makes any money. <laughs> he had to get to his next fair. Right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. That, and that's where... Uh, so, well, you're noticing with the whole review system and the app-based economy, and even like buying things from eBay or Amazon with ratings, it's all very self-policing. It's pretty amazing. You know, you could buy something with confidence anywhere because nobody wants that bad review. I do. So, you know, I, I love buying online, and I love the reviewable sites, and, you know, you look at eBay ratings and so forth when you buy something, and you could almost be sure that you're going to have good service. It, it's, a, it's amazing how that's all that's changed the way business is done. I, I'm with you, John. I couldn't agree more. That rating system for me, I love it. Uh, both ways, I'd like to be rated so I know how well I'm doing and what I might be doing wrong. But I love shopping when I can read reviews from real people and the ride sharing. Uh, those are all the really good parts of technology that I do like. With that, I've got to wrap this up and get out of here. We'll see you next time. Thanks to the guys from Pittsburgh Power. Be safe. Be profitable. Be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. I'm Kevin Rutherford. All right, thanks, everybody. We will see you tomorrow for Destination Health. Thank you for using Blog Talk Radio. Goodbye.